I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yi. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Welcome to Beyond the Fog Radio. We are currently on a break because we're out recording brand spanking new episodes for you all. And while we are on this break, we have actually decided to re-release some of our favorite episodes. And one of those episodes is about Mr. Raz Kennedy and his musical genius here in the Bay Area. What a true artist he was. Oh, we just loved chatting with him at his studio in Berkeley. The music series on Beyond the Fog Radio was one of my favorite series to date. So, Susan, I'm really excited to hear what you had to say about our interview with Raz Kennedy. What was your favorite part? Raz Kennedy is like a secret sauce in an amazing recipe. I'm not going to give anything away, but he is truly a hidden gem of the Bay Area. And anyone who doesn't know who he is needs to pay attention and listen because everything that he's done with music in the Bay Area is mind-blowing. I agree. I think that's why we decided to bring this episode back was because he's just, he needs to be more famous. (laughs) People need to know about Raz Kennedy. He is such a sparkly human and a total treasure of the Bay Area, like Susan said. Well, if you didn't hear him the first time around, then welcome back. Here is our interview with Bay Area music legend, Raz Kennedy. Raz Kennedy is like a secret weapon. He is a San Francisco Bay Area and Los Angeles premier vocal coach. He has worked with and helped so many well-known recording artists. He is also a singer-songwriter and producer and has sung with many recording artists. This incredible musician has been singing and giving instruction on how to use your voice for over 40 years. He's also acknowledged as the premier vocal coach in the San Francisco Bay Area, devoted to the pursuit of excellence. Raz Kennedy is one of the founding members of Bobby McFerrin's Voistra, and he performed background vocals for Whitney Houston, Al Jarreau, Kenny Loggins, Sting, and Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead. In August of 2021, Jay, Michaela, and I had the honor of interviewing Mr. Raz Kennedy. My name is Raz Kennedy. I'm a vocal coach and a vocal producer. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Raz Kennedy. Tell us a little bit about what you do. The main thrust of what I'm doing now is supporting singers. What I do is people will call me when they need help with bringing out what they're trying to do expressively as vocalists. Somebody has a need to open up or to get in touch with the storyline of a song or to get into character. What may have to happen in terms of where they need to go mentally, emotionally and then 
physically, you know, the mechanics of the voice. I help people with how to integrate all of those elements to make so that they can express themselves without there being any hindering, where they're feeling connected to the song and to what it is they're, they're trying to say, to communicate. Singing is communication. So. so that's what I do. And so I'll help singers as a coach to prepare them for auditions or for gigs, recording sessions, and then I'll also be in the studio as a producer to help bring out the performance as they're tracking their performances in a recording setting. And then on the side, although I used to do it a lot more, but I still will sing as a creative singing artist myself for different things. I might be asked to appear in some live thing or do a backing vocal for something or contribute something to a, a cause where they need a singer to present a message of some kind. It used to happen a lot more, but now I'm more of the guy behind the scenes. And tell us a little bit about your career, how you got started, where are you originally from? You're going to like this because my mother, right, she's responsible for why I'm here. I was born in 53 in, in Los Angeles. And my mother, she was quite young. She was 20, as was my father. They had me, and then 11 months later, they had my sister. I was born in February, and my sister was born in December of the same year. So my mother really needed to get out of the house. She had to get a break from the whole idea of mothering. So she and my father agreed that she would get a little job just to sort of break the rhythm. So she got a job as a secretary, and it just so happened to be at an artist management company. And now she had no interest in entertainment as a career, but here she is as a secretary, and it wasn't long before management saw that she had writing skills. So they put her into promotion and marketing and publicity for the artist. So now she's no longer a secretary, but she's traveling around the country putting together promotional events for these artists. Now, these artists were the, some of the top artists of the day. This was during the doo-wop period, so like the Platters wow. was one of their major artists. So she ended up doing that, and for about a year, she and my father both were really excited about this whole business of traveling and being connected to the entertainment world and the glitz and the glamour. After about a year of that, though, my father decided, you know, that was fun. You got your break. Because in the meantime, the grandparents were managing my sister and I. So he decided to circle back and say, okay, well, let's get back to business of you being the housewife. I'm the guy who brings home the bacon because he worked on an assembly line building aircraft for the government. So he was the breadwinner. She is the housewife. Well, my mother wasn't having it. Because <laughs> after she'd gotten a taste of that, she says, no, I want to do this. And of course, that was when the big schism happened. They're both from the South, very conventional. And this was like so outside of what was considered acceptable, especially in the mid-50s. Wow. For a woman to be doing anything other than attending kids, and uh, that was unheard of. So to be uh, someone in the music business, which was seen like, oh my God, all these degenerates and that kind of a thing. But that's what she wanted to do. And so my father left and my grandmother decided to raise me and my sister to give my mother this opportunity. Because you have to imagine, she was not only a woman, but she was a woman of color. She was a real trailblazer, a real maverick. In fact, from what I understand, there's going to be books written soon where they're going to focus on women of color in the music business, and she's one of the people that they'll highlight. Because no one was doing that. But she ended up working there, but then she moved on and worked for distributors who at that time were responsible for promoting records, not record labels. 
things back in the 50s and 60s were more broken up. There weren't such monopolies. So she started doing that for uh, distributors, you know, breaking records, making sure DJs would play them. That was how I got into music because I'd be hearing music all the time because she'd have to monitor the radio to make sure DJs were playing her records. Anyway, she moved on to where she ended up working under Clive Davis at Columbia and Epic. She handled the whole West Coast region back in the 60s as a woman of color and as a black woman. Okay, wow. that's amazing. It is. I didn't know how amazing she was until later on in life. But then it also is quite disturbing to know that when you look at these company photos where you see the staff of these divisions that she oftentimes was not only a part of but led. She's not in the photos? She's in the photos. But what's disturbing is that she's the only woman in the photo and the only black person in the photo. Wow. And so, you know, with Me Too and everything, we know about things. I can only imagine what she had to do to move up the ladder as she did, being a woman and a person of color. Right. So I'm sure that had a great deal to do with why she kept me and my sister separate, in a way, from what she was doing with the career. Yeah. But at the same time, she was an inspiration, because her example was what moved me to do music. And I think, now that I think about it, I think it had more to do with me attempting to get my mother's attention. I think that's why I got into music. Not so much that I was so into music, but I found or I saw that it was the musicians that she spent her time giving energy to, promoting, supporting. And I think I got into music as a way to think that maybe she would see me if I was doing music. And that she would spend time with you. Yeah. Oh, no. Because I would only see her on weekends. She moved and got her own place in the Valley because there was another stigma No one in the music business could imagine a woman, because there were women in the music business, but no one could really imagine a woman having a career in the music business if they had kids, because your energy, your focus, your attention would be divided. Right. How can you give a career full attention like a guy does, being a mother? So we had to grow up pretending we were her younger siblings. So I could never call her mother, because she had to protect that image of being single. That was another reason why she didn't live with us and would only visit us on weekends. But at times when we would be in public, we would be her younger siblings. Wow. So it was a really strange way to grow up. So I have this sort of love-resentment relationship Mm -hmm. because I really admire her being the maverick she was. And she had to sacrifice for what she achieved, and she did achieve quite a bit. But I really respect that she acted on what was true for her in spite of so much pushback, especially from our community, from the black community, from my father's relatives. I mean, I mean, wow. But in spite of that, she followed her heart and did exactly what she wanted to do. She died doing exactly what she wanted to do. And I hold her in such high regard, in spite of the fact that because of it, there was neglect as her being a mom. Sure. Right. But that's okay, because I had a great-grandmother who took care of business. And I'm glad my mother did what she... She followed her heart. And for a woman, especially a woman of color, do your thing. But that's how I got into music. That's the right. long-winded uh, <laughs> explanation. That's wonderful. That's an amazing story, actually. That would make a... I thought you might appreciate story. it. Yeah. And so, what age did you get into the music? 
I started when I was around eight. I mean, I was singing, but around eight was when I picked up the cello, and then years after that, I picked up the guitar. And then there was a lot of music going on. And because my mom was in the business, there were times when, you know, I would end up going to, she was the publicist for Ike and Tina Turner. We'd end up at their homes on occasion. Sonny and Cher would drop by. So I would go to a little Richard recording session. I would see Major Lance or Gene Chandler. These were artists that she represented, uh, Ray Charles. I started doing music actively at around eight. And then I started playing in bands at around 12. So there was so much of that going on in Los Angeles. So I was primarily playing guitar, and I would sing only because nobody in the band wanted to sing. So I would do the singing, but I didn't really identify as being a singer. I was an instrumentalist. And it wasn't until I got into college when I decided to take the voice on more seriously. So when I got to college, I was a music major, so I was a voice major and I had the clarinet as my second instrument. I thought I would use a wind instrument that would be in line with singing, you know, two wind instruments. So I was singing all along, but I didn't really look at myself as a singer until college. And that's when, really when I discovered jazz. When I was growing up, I was doing mostly rock and R&B because that was what I was exposed to, the radio. You know, Jimi Hendrix and Sonny right. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, or, or it might be Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, The Temptations, Letta Motown, then Wilson Pickett, and Bobby Womack, and my mother had, you know, Dinah Washington and Bobby Blue Bland records hanging around. It was the R&B and the rock that we would do in the bands. So I would maybe do a Wilson Pickett tune, and then we'd run into a song by the Stones, you know. Yeah. But then I discovered jazz in my last year of, uh, not that I hadn't heard it, but Something had happened where I found a pull, and it was when I heard Eric Dolphy and John Coltrane. Like, their music really captured me, and then from then on, I was doing jazz. So in college, I was doing jazz, vocal work, and some classical. I was there for a couple of years and then dropped out because I, was, I joined a funk band in Palo Alto. <laughs> so that's how I grew up doing Battle of the Band contests as yeah. a kid. The schools would sponsor, you know, live dances where we would play. There was the contact center where this guy hooked up a scene where young musicians could find one another and network and wow. have jam sessions. So that's what I did as a kid growing up. I don't know how I got out of high school because I hardly ever went to class. When I was very young, I went to private school. My mother put me in a Catholic school to make sure I got a good education. So by the time I dropped out of there, when I left there to go to public, I was way out and ahead of kids academically. So I didn't really have to study much and do quite well. And when I got into high school, I got really more politically involved. I was part of the Black Student Union and the anti-war movement. I was really more into the socio-political activities of the time. Sure. I was really very political because I was going to go to Vietnam. That was a real thing for me. And Did uh, you get drafted? I did not. I went underground. Uh -huh. But I would have been. They had the lottery for the birth right. dates. Yeah, so. yeah. So I, I avoided that, but I was very political, and I saw music as a political kind of a tool, as we all did back at that time. Music at that time was a voice for change. So I was really involved in that movement. And then I got more into spiritual stuff. So by the time I got to college, I got into meditation. And that was because of my interest in what John Coltrane was doing and Alice Coltrane, because they, they had a spiritual angle on their music. And that was something I got drawn to because I was so drawn to the music. I wanted to know, well, what's, where is this music being drawn from? 
and with Coltrane's spiritual uh, awakening, that led me more into more spiritual concerns. So I was in a seminary for a while. I was going to be a monk. And wow. So I joined, I was in a seminary to be an Orthodox monk for about a year down in Santa Clara. Wow. And I got into singing Byzantine music. So that's how I kept my music thing going, singing, that kind of stuff. But then after about a year and a half, I dropped out of that, realizing that wasn't really it. I, I just needed that for self-inquiry and to look at things and to slow down a bit. I needed that for those reasons, but not to be a monk, which was the initial impetus. Right. right. So when I came back and got back into music, I felt more grounded, more centered, which was when I moved to Berkeley. Okay. Which is my next question. Yeah, that's when I came. To, that's when I came to the Bay Area. I was in San Jose going to school, uh-huh. and that's where I found the seminary. Where I was there for a little over a year, and then somebody said you ought to go north because it's more happening up in San Francisco and East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley. So that's when I came up here. Okay, so and that wait. was in seventy-five. Oh, it's nineteen seventy-five. Okay, right. so I've been here since seventy-five. So musically, can you describe? A lot of people weren't born in 1975 yet. So musically... <laughs> I think she's looking at us. I think she is. Man. Can you describe what was happening in 1975? Yeah, I mean, jazz and fusion was off the charts. During the 70s, you know, we had Weather Report. Herbie did his thing with Headhunters. You had Joni Mitchell collaborating with Jaco Pastorius and Herbie. And then you had great artists right here, like John Hendricks was living here. A lot of vocal jazz was going on. Of course, Bobby McFerrin moved here not long after that. And uh, I was singing in jazz ensembles. It seems like jazz was what I was mostly into. I was doing a lot of publicity work, being inspired by my mother for jazz artists like McCoy Tyner and George Benson. But locally, you had the Mofessionals and... There was just so many funk and R&B and jazz groups. You had the Hieroglyphics, which was that group out of Berkeley High, yeah. with all of those great artists that spawned out of that movement. I didn't realize they were from Berkeley High. The Hieroglyphics? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a whole ensemble of all of these great... Berkeley High was like this hotbed for music, as was Alameda College with Bill Bell. These guys mentored a lot of the great artists that became Tony, Tony, Tone and all of these wonderful... Tony, art. Tony, Tone is from here? Oakland. Oh, yeah, Oakland. In Vogue. I mean, Oakland. Wow. Of course. They don't know because they're too young. So tell wow. them. I mean, I, I know them. I didn't yeah, know that didn't they were from here. They don't know, who oh, they don't know who's from they're, here. They're my favorite, some of my favorite people to listen Oak to. Oaktown. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean... I was in high school in 1975, so my friends would come visit me. We'd walk behind our house, and we would hear Crosby, Stills, Nash rehearsing in a garage. Right, okay. <laughs> that Which was like blows normal. my mind. Yeah, and Danny Glover <laughs> lived around the corner. My right. mother taught Danny how to play guitar. So music, you guys don't know this, but music was coming out of the woodwork in San Francisco, bubbling yeah. out through the water. It, it was everywhere. There were so many clubs. That's what we like, heard. Like, you know, on Broadway, you know, that strip. Yeah. I mean, you have all the strip places there, but there were, were as many nightclubs. Music. Right. R&B, jazz, and rock all up and down that street. The Chi-Chi Club, the Mabuhe, the Stone. I mean, there was so much music all over Berkeley. You had Mapenzi. It was ridiculous wow. how much live music there was. And then, of course, South of Market was sort of like the next community that rose up. What was that one club where they had three stages under one roof? Paradise Lounge. I'm glad I got my posters up yeah, here. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Yeah, Paradise Lounge. They had three rooms with live music. Wow. That's awesome. And then there was the Oasis across the street. And then you had Slim's across the street from there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Slim's is still there. Yeah, Slim's is still there. Yeah. That's the only thing that's still around. Yeah. Wow. I think they're still there now. Yeah, they are. I don't, they are? Okay. Yeah, and that whole area down there was just Club City. I mean, it was just the live the music. Hill is right there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of live music was happening all over the place. All over the place. Which is what San Francisco has been known for in the past, like cabarets, jazz clubs, and R&B, like from the... 40s, yeah. 50s. Yeah, that's the San Francisco everybody talks about. Hate Street, you know, yeah. Upper Hate. All kinds of clubs. All Terrence Brent Darby played at the I-Beam. Remember the I-Beam? Yeah, I remember the I-Beam. Yeah, I mean, there was just clubs all up and down Hate Street. Counting Crows got their record deals. It's doing a, a showcase there. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, Jefferson Starship had their house literally oh. on Fulton Street. Right, yeah. Well, the hate was, everybody lived in the hate. Everyone lived in the hate. Yeah, free music in the park, on the streets. That was through the 60s and early 70s. Day on the Green. Yeah, Day on the Green out in Oakland. and Yeah, where you had eight or nine record stores within a two-block radius. Record stores. And they were all thriving because people were buying records. Yeah. It's pre-digital. So you'd buy and sell records. They had used record stores right. that were thriving. So it was a huge music scene as far as live music goes. You don't see it now. We had the Keystone right here in Berkeley, the rock club right on the corner here at where Shattuck dead ends at University. And then you had the Blues Club right there on University. Taj Mahal would play there. Bonnie Wright might drop in. And, of course, Marin County had a huge music scene. Huge, you know? giant. Yeah. Really? In Mill Valley. And Mill Valley, Madera yeah. Wow. And, yeah, you know, huge. Katati, just all over the clubs everywhere. But this was in the 60s and 70s. It spilled over a little bit into the 80s, but the 80s was like where that was the death nail when things really changed when the digital revolution kicked in. We had all of these clubs, and then the high-tech people started moving in, and um, the clubs started closing because these people were buying out the properties, and right. the real estate prices soared, and it drove the musicians out of yeah. the city. In fact, a lot of people have been doing this for a while where they're moving into the East Bay because right. the uh, high-tech thing has outpriced artists. There were these incredible music rehearsal cities, like you know, rehearsal rooms and huge venues, warehouses that would be that had been revised and made into big rehearsal spaces. They all closed down. They were all in South of Market, right? South of Market, yeah. Yeah. Some recording studios. Yeah, recording studios. The digital revolution just changed everything. So there were fewer outlets for live music and then recorded music and everybody was just remember the Napster yeah. thing that started? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that was the beginning of people just taking music offline for free. It has changed quite a bit. I mean, I'm sure the record labels made a ton of money ripping off artists, but artists made a lot more money. Even while they were getting ripped off, they were making more money than they're making now. Right. Because you got this streaming going on, and people are hearing your stuff. Right. Back in the day, if your music was being heard that often, you'd be sitting pretty. You can barely make a penny for listen now i mean people are getting your music they're certainly enjoying it but the artists aren't being compensated so i don't know what's going to happen in that regard artists have been able to sustain themselves make money on the shows but that's been hard given what's been happening for the last two years right so i don't know quite where or how it's going to resurface so we interviewed one of susan's friends david katz nelson and he would mention that in the mission, like if you go to Bruno's one day, one evening, you would run into all these artists 
whether before or after their shows. Were there some of those experiences out here in Berkeley or in San Francisco that you remember? Definitely. Yeah. Could yeah. you tell us about one of those? Well, I mean, people were pretty accessible. It could be local artists, even touring artists. So talking with Linda Ronstand after she did her gig when she was doing the Norteño Mariachi thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, Herbie Hancock or Betty Carter after a gig at, at Keystone Corner where, you know, Todd Barkin's Jazz Club. It'd be really easy to hang out with Rosan Roland Kirk after a gig he might have done there. Uh, most anybody, I guess because I was kind of in the scene, it was no big thing to just meet people, you know. Uh, meeting Stevie Wonder, you know, and hanging out with him for an hour and talking to somebody about his mom passing and mm. how he's struggling with that and how uh, she appeared to him in a dream and said, Stevie, get back out and tour, because he hadn't done shows in 10 years. He was, he said, man, you know, I couldn't sing. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I don't have technique. I've got technique coming out of my ears. But the grief he was going through because of the loss of his mother, he had no voice. Mm. Your voice is so dependent upon your state of being. When you don't have heart, you can't sing. And so it was really interesting to speak with him about that and how he'd been Dealing with it, uh, his mother showed up in a vision and said, get back out, Stevie, your people need you. Don't worry about me, I'm okay. And that was what gave him a way to come back out and perform again. Wow. You know, so just those kinds of things, you know, people just talking about their journey. Do you um, feel the Bay Area gives that space for artists? Do you think that's why it's a popular place? Could you talk about that a little bit? Like while you, why you're here, how that is cultivated. It's more nurturing the Bay Area. People will, and that's why Narda was, I think that's why he did so well. Not only is he an inspiring producer, but his studio was out in Marin County. So artists would leave LA, leave New York, leave Athens, Greece, leave wherever they are, London. And they'd come to the Bay Area. And it's so pretty. It's so green. The Bay, it's so gorgeous. There's space. And so people can create here in a way that they can't create sometimes when they're in these more, you know, bottled up. I mean, sometimes a place like New York can be very inspiring. Right. But at the same time, the Bay Area has always been the kind of place where folks would say to go if you're really trying to cultivate your sound. This is where you find yourself and where you have the space to have something come up and emerge. Then you go to L.A. That's the marketplace. That's where you sell it. I see. see. That's where, you know, New York is where you sell it. it so people have come here and that's what they use it for. You know, Alice Walker moved here. I mean, a lot of people come here because this is where you can get in touch with something more subtle. You can go inward. Yeah. That's why I moved and, here. Yeah, exactly. That's why I moved here. I'm from L.A. Right. And so when people go to Narda's studio, you know, that it's, you're working, but you're in a, an environment where you feel like you can breathe. So that's been the gift that the Bay Area has given artists, a place where they can actually create, really, and be more organic in that kind of a way of creating. You're not trying to write the next hit, although you might, right. or you're not yeah. trying to meet the next trend. You're actually creating something that might become the trend. Right. It's yes. more of an innovative, the Bay Area's been innovative in that way in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Politically, mm -hmm. technology, Music, I mean, Sly Stone came from here. Johnny Mathis, I mean, this is where they found their voice. You know, the whole hippie scene with, with, with what was going on in the 60s. That was in the Bay Area. 
that scene started here. Joan Baez. Joan Baez. She's Bay Area. Yeah, Bay Area. Santana, Bay Area. I mean, do you think there's more of an open minded feel here, too, where people can be whoever they want to be and they're not judged like they are in LA or trying to fit themselves in a pigeonhole in New York? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah. it creates this sort of open atmosphere to allow you to find yourself. So you may not meet the requirements of what they will, will expect from you in New York or. Paris, but here uh, you don't have those kinds of considerations. You're permitted to do your own thing, find out what resonates for you. And there's the space, and also there's support systems that advocate that. So it's not like you're just finding it, but there's ways that you can... Like the seminar, like being a monk. You yeah. Go I, be a monk in San Jose or Santa Clara. Santa Clara, yeah. 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 But yeah, you have all of these, and like spiritually speaking, yeah. and just in terms of progressive thinking, you've got Spirit Rock, you've got the Hoffman Institute. Bonnie Raitt told me about the, the Hoffman Institute. That was there for her. Where is it, this? It's in Marin, in San Rafael, their oh. main office. Okay. But it's another way in which people can process trauma and get more in touch with what's underlying that can give them a way to feel freed from it. LSD was here, you know. Yeah. You know, expand your mind. <laughs> Free you know. your mind. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, these ways of thinking about things uh, outside the box is, is. I remember when I was a kid, you'd hear older people talking about, let's get away to San Francisco and get freed up on a weekend. <laughs> and that's how San Francisco was seen by people in the South down in uh, LA. Wow. Let's go to San Francisco and get a little crazy, get, you know, <laughs> lose ourselves because it had that rep. Wow. This is the place of possibility. Yeah. Yeah. More so than LA. On many levels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many groups came out of here. Huey Lewis in the News. Tower of Power. Tower of Power from Oakland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in 1975, you moved here. And then what happened? I got into concert promotions. I met a a gorgeous woman. I was living on the street because I had nowhere to to stay. I was homeless. I was like one of those kids you see, you know over on Telegraph Avenue or on Haight Street. I was in my early 20s. I would go into the dorms. This was during the summer, and I would play the piano in the rec rooms, right? And this woman came down, this gorgeous woman, Conda Mason, and she says, I want to learn that. Tell me about it. She worked for the university. She was helping with the um, orientation program for transferring in new students. So she got to know me, and she helped me out. She got me a phony student ID card where I could go into the uh, job placement office on the Cal campus. And I could go in there and I knew how to paint houses. So I got a job painting houses in Oakland. And that's how I got off the street. She helped me with that. And then it was she and I that hooked up with Greg Perloff, who now is Another Planet, you know, the production. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, Another Planet. Yeah. He is well, Another Planet. Greg Perloff was a student at Cal doing concert promotions for Superb and CAL. So Conda was a student there. I wasn't, but I says, look, if we want to get into concert promotions, don't worry. Let me do all the talking. My mother was in the music business, right? I know, I know all about it, you know. <laughs> so, funny. so we go in there, and Greg is the guy that's kind of spearheading this student concert promotion team. So I give him my spiel, and he hires us to work with, you know. So that's where everything got started. It was the three, they called us the dynamic trio, me, Conda, and Greg were the first team to actually make money for the university selling music wow wow that's cool we did the jazz festival every year that three-day festival at the greek theater yes 
We so were you the promoted f- that? Every year. Wow. And we were the first ones to make it lucrative. But we sold it out every night, 9,000 people every night. Wow. wow. Dang. We created such a buzz that Bill Graham came and offered us all gigs to work for him. Right. Conda decided, nah, I want to promote women's music, black women's music on the East Coast. So I'm going to work for Sweet Honey and The Rock. So that's what she did. She moved to D.C. <laughs> that's awesome. I decided, you know what? I'm just BSing myself. I'm really an artist. I, I was doing this music business thing with fear of not thinking I could make it as an artist. I'm going back to being an artist. I don't want to be in the business. Not only that, Bill Graham, but where were you when we approached you to help us make this music happen, to be a co-promoter, and you weren't interested because you thought jazz couldn't make music. So you dissed us. So screw you anyway. I wouldn't work for you even if I was going to continue in the business. Yeah. That's how I felt about him yeah. at the time. I was an idealist at the time. Yeah. So, you know, because we tried to get him to co-promote with us, and he right. wouldn't do it because he didn't see any money. And now we're making money. Now he's sniffing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, screw you. Yeah. You're just a pig as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and then, but Greg said, I'm going to take the gig. And I was so pissed off at him. I said, you are a sellout. Because we were doing jazz. We were right. about the music. Right. He says, Raz, Raz, it's always been about the music, man. And I know, I know Bill Graham's a pig, you know. He's just thinking <laughs> about dollar signs. But there is a day when I would like to see a Mercedes in my driveway and an ounce of Coke on my kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> so he took the job. And he and I were like, we, I just, we wouldn't talk. I wouldn't talk to him for months. But he took the job, and uh, later on, we circled back to one another, and we were, we're best of friends now. But he ended up working for Bill Graham, and when Bill Graham died in that helicopter crash, he became president of BGP, right. Greg. But then when these right-wing Republican assholes, they bought the business, Greg says, you know, I don't want a part of this. Right. So that's when he bounced and started another planet. Right. Because mm-hmm. by that time, he knew everybody. He knew all the promoters, he knew all the artists, he knew all the agents. He didn't need, so he started his own company. His very first show was Bruce Springsteen at AT&T Park. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. That was his first show. That's amazing. He came out with a bang. That's a great first show. Yeah. yeah. He modeled his company right after Bill Graham. He got the independent. Bill Graham always had a club. Right. So he got the independent, that's his club. Then he got the midsize room, the Bill Graham Civic Center. Bill always had a room like that. And then he got the Fox. That was Bill Graham's version of, that's correct. of the uh, Fillmore. Right, that's so correct. So he got the Fox, and then he, had, he got the Greek Theater. Right. He got all the shows because he was connected to Cal. Mm. So he had connections with Cal, so he, he secured the Greek Theater. So he did the same thing Bill did in terms of having the different venues for different artists that had different demographics and different pull. So that's how I got back in the music. And then that's when I, because I had done concert promotions, that was how I got to know all the local artists because oh. I was booking them. Right, exactly. As opening acts and stuff like that. What ended up happening was I wanted to get more integrated with the music scene. So I knew Andy Norell. I knew John Santos. I knew Vicky Randall. I met all of them. So I ended up working at a music camp called uh, Casadero Music Camp. Volunteer just to be in with the musicians and to get to know them and to teach and to get myself integrated into the musical community. And so that's what I did. I Started out as a volunteer just to be in the scene, and then I ended up getting paid to work there every year. That's how I found my way into the music scene as an artist. 
working at that music camp. So I got to know the Kellys, you know, Ed Kelly and Terrence Kelly. And the, back then, Terrence Kelly, you know, he was working for his mother. His mother was the choir director. And he was assisting her. And when she died, then he stepped in mm. to her role. Mm. So now he's got the interfaith gospel choir. But it all started at this music camp. It's amazing. Yeah, and Ed yeah. Kelly, jazz piano, and all the jazz cats. That's how I got. What's the name of the music camp? It was called Casadero Music Camp, and it was a Berkeley camp up in the Redwoods. So it was up in the uh, was, Russian River area. But oh, was it beautiful. in Casadero? It was in Casadero. Okay, yeah. That I, little I river off of right. the, the Casadero. Yeah. And so jazz camp was one of many camps that this organization sponsored. They had youth camps, music for kids 8 to 12, music for teenagers. They had a classical camp. They had a jazz camp. They had a family camp where whole families would go up and do music together. So the jazz camp that we know now that you hear about every year, that's where it got started. That's so cool. And when Casadero, when Camps Inc., Camps Incorporated, that was the company that ran these camps. It went belly up. But when it went belly up, the people that were involved with jazz camp didn't want to see that camp go under. So Stacy, who was a nurse at jazz camp, Stacy Hoffman, who's the director, she <laughs> took it upon herself. Let's save this camp. Wow. She spearheaded the whole thing. And so jazz camp continued. Uh, from that point on, and it's still going. And it's still going. Still going. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so then what happened? Oh, wow. Well, that camp led me into doing a lot of other things I got opened up to. It helped me in two ways, because when I started teaching, my wife got me into teaching. She was a music educator, so I learned how to teach by working for her, providing music for the students. But at jazz camp, I started working with a lot of the young artists as a coach, And it turns out that several of these young artists became successful, like they became big stars. So, of course, when they're big stars, who coached you? (laughs) Well, then my name is dropped. And so all of a sudden, I'm starting to get calls from management companies and production companies. And so that's how I started working with a lot of different artists. That's how I met Narda, in fact. Because he was looking for a coach, and my name came up, and I got the gig. Uh, He had auditioned. In fact, he sent out people like Skyler and Kitty and Claytoven to audition vocal coaches because he wanted one. And it turned up that I was the guy that was the best fit for him. Okay. So I was very flattered that, you know, I got the gig. <laughs> because of my work at Casadero, working with young artists there that became stars, my coaching thing really took off in that way. And then through the music thing, that's how I met Bobby McFerrin, because I was doing jazz, vocal work, and when he came to town, he wanted to know more about what was going on in the jazz scene, so that's how I met him. And we started doing jam sessions, so that when he wanted a vocal ensemble, I was one of the picks for Voicester. So I worked with him for seven years, but then working with Narda, given that I was his coach and I brought his voice back, you know, he threw a lot of work at me, too. So I started doing backup vocals for Al Jarreau. I was on that Whitney Houston record. I did some backups for that. And he was really generous. And then I started doing more performance stuff. And so when people see you on the stage, uh, next thing you know, you're getting a call. Todd Rundgren saw you in that production. He wants you on his record. And so working in Jazz Mouth, working with Rebecca Molion, singing for her. One thing just leads to another. It's fantastic. You know, yeah, so you really just kind of go with it. Yeah, yeah. kind of end up saying yes a lot. Yeah, at first you say yes because you just want to work. You want the exposure. You want to be seen. So I did a lot of volunteer stuff at the very beginning. 
teaching-wise and uh, performance-wise. But then after a while, people start to take you seriously when they see that you're still on the scene. That's the other thing, too. A lot of artists think that you have to be part of a community. Like, in other words, I remembered how long it took before I got my first recording session. And it wasn't that people didn't know me. They knew me. There's kind of a pecking order. In fact, Skylar was always above me because you know, he was around longer. And that's kind of like how it works, you know. So, But when people see that you're still around after being told no over and over and over again, but you're still here, then they begin to take you seriously. Right. It's like, you must really want to do this because after all that, you're still here? Yeah. I think part of it is that people want to know that you're sincere because so many folks just want to be seen, but they're kind of posers. But if you're still around and you're still working at it and you do it because there's a passion for it rather than for some other incentive, then people take you seriously and then that's when you start getting the nod. Then that's when people start saying yes. So I'm just glad I stuck around long enough to finally get a yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you're obviously very talented at what you do as well. I'm really good as a vocal coach and a vocal producer. Mm. I I don't mean to toot my horn, but I'm really good at that. I'm really good. Can I wager a guess is that you allow people to open their hearts through their voice? This is what I think it is. Remember back when I was talking about me going into music as an attempt to get my mother's attention. Yes. Yeah. If that wasn't the dynamic back then and I was just left to my own devices to just do whatever my heart really wanted rather than trying to get love, I think I would have been a doctor because I really like helping people. Mm -hmm. I want to cure people, make them feel better, empower people. And that's why I think I gravitate more towards the coaching and the producing than the performing. Yeah. See that. Because that's really where that part of me can, and even when and when I do performing, it's coming from a place of trying to heal or trying to help. That's why I work with Bobby. I auditioned for Santana. He was looking for a singer. I auditioned for Tower of Power. They were looking for a singer. And I auditioned for Bobby McFerrin all at the same time. So I was over at Santana's place in San Rafael. I went there and I got a call back. They sent me some music to study. I went down to L.A. because Tower Power had moved down there, the horn section. So I went down there, sung for them. They wanted me to do a call back. And then I auditioned for Bobby. I took Bobby's gig because it resonated more strong in terms of this is music for healing. Right. This is music for empowering people. Right. It's not entertainment. Yes. Right. I mean, it's entertaining. Of course. But his mission is to try to move people to become more of who they want to be. Correct. And that's why I took that gig. Yeah. Uh-huh. Plus, it was a little bit more revolutionary. He was doing some new stuff. Like when I was studying the Santana stuff, even though I like his stuff, and also Tower of Power, I love their stuff, but in a way, it was almost like being in a cover band. Right. Because mm-hmm. you're learning all of these old songs, the greatest hits. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like being in a glorified cover band. Mm-hmm. Bobby's that was like, Completely new. Coming out of, it was Spirit. from the source. Oh, okay. So it was like, Completely. so that was like, you know, this is fresh for one thing. Right. And it's all vocal and it's about healing. So right. I took that gig. And we, so that's why I'm better at coaching and producing because I think I'm exercising this way of, that's who I show up being more, yeah. helping people. Right. Oh, I feel it. Yeah. Upon, I mean, this room, your energy is mm. very... It's very calming. It's very calming. Mm, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, that's good to know. Oh, right. I feel great right now. How about you guys? No, really? no, it, it, yeah. I, <laughs> I, had, I had the opportunity right before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to 
sing in circle sing for a little bit. David Worm. Worm, yes. Yeah, he and I sang together with Bobby. We yeah. were like the two tenors. <laughs> right. And, and I and I don't I'm, I don't have a good voice, but I enjoy singing for that for that same spiritual connection. So I did that and I was like, ah, that feeling and I get that same feeling interviewing you now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're very open. That's McFerrin. He taught us how to listen. Yeah. Mm. And you speak into what people are listening for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Narda, McFerrin, George Coates, June Watanabe. Those are my mentors. Catherine Sadlin. They learn a lot from those people. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. I want to be respectful of your time. I know it was a short interview. We are over time. Oh, yeah. okay. Thank so you. is there any um, last questions that you might have? Like I say, I, w- I really wish I had more to say about the scene. I, I think you said plenty. You said, you said a ton. Oh, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. That was perfect. Raz, this oh, wow. is amazing. <laughs> this is what we wanted to know. We wanted to know about you. And, and your experience here. Your experience and the feeling of the city that we live in. This is what oh, we're wow. we're yeah. trying to, to talk about what it's like to be here and be a part of the culture here and not just what we can read on your website about what you do, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was perfect. Right. I, we you. cannot thank you enough for yeah. this, your time. Well, my pleasure, really. Do you uh, have any final thoughts that you want to share with us? I'm just delighted that you're doing this. Hopefully it'll be inspiring to folks to keep the flame alive, you know, when you hear people's experiences and hopefully it'll encourage folks to continue to keep that vision of community alive. It's the yes. main thing. I think it's happening. It's just taking on a new form that we all have to kind of get in rhythm with. But community is the key and music is that connecting sort of glue gives people a reason to get together where are you going to this concert you know I, I think music is just an excuse for folks to find one another and music is the sort of like the reason that we can come up with as a way to connect that's right you know and that's that's, right. that's the beauty of music is yeah. it makes it so that we can actually yeah. be together yeah and 100%. But, the, but the togetherness is what it's about right more so than the music yes it's, that's what the music brings on you know yeah now we don't have to include this I in agree. the interview but I was just wanted to say, I listened to that track, Duet. Oh, yeah. On your website. Yeah. I'm still moved by it. <laughs> I can see your life's work through that one track. Yeah, that track. I have some Native American blood in me. And there was a time when, before colonialism and whatnot, Native American communities recognized six genders. Six genders. And they were all cool. And then, of course, when colonialism came in, they were told, no, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. And so then it whittled it down to, like, to what we know today. So that song, Duet, it's about duality. Um, so it's sort of like a chant. Yeah. And it's coming from my sense of connection with my Native American heritage and about the idea of the multiplicity, bringing that back, acceptance of so many different ways of expressing so it's a call out for Beautiful. bringing that back as well as a grieving of how that got lost. Oh, I heard that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. still touched by it today. And that was very spontaneous because yeah. I, I, I had the piano idea already yeah. figured out. But then when I laid the vocal, I, that, that was just improvised. Really? That was just improvised, yeah. It just came out perfect. It was wow. totally inspired. Yeah. But that was inspired by Bobby McFerrin. That's kind of like where I was drawing from Howard Bobby. What would he be drawing from? That's why I think it came out so beautifully. Yeah. Because I was kind of channeling his way of accessing something. Thank, Thank you for you. complimenting Thank me. Because that, that, that's a meaningful tune to me. 
Oh yeah. As far as where it was coming from and where it was trying to go. Yeah. But thanks for recognizing that. That's, that moves me to yeah. hear that you saw that you saw that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you yeah. so much. It's been a pleasure. Nice. Really, such a pleasure. You're so gracious. Thank you. Really, Thank you. really beautiful soul. Thank you. Really, what a pleasure to meet you. Nice, to, very nice to meet you as well. Beyond the Fog Radio is created by us, Connor Chang, Tim O'Shea, Tim Johnson, and Arliss Hayes. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.